Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. We are going to be looking at chapter 7, and we will be looking together at verses 9 through 16. Acts chapter 7, 9 through 16. You can find that passage on either page 1076 in your pew Bibles or beginning there at the bottom of page 34 in your Acts journals. And as we begin to look together at the Word of God this morning, please allow me to just remind you of where we left off last time and set the context for the scripture that is before us for our consideration this morning. The last time we were together, we were at the outset of this rather hastily thrown together trial of the disciple Stephen. And the high priest himself began the proceedings with the question that precedes this rather long answer that Stephen gives recorded for us here. And I want to just interject here for a moment and say that the more that I have studied Stephen's answer, some call it a sermon, others call it a defense given by Stephen here, the less likely, the more I've studied it, the less likely I am to refer to it as a defense. And I want us to understand this. Stephen is not at all on the defensive here. It is much more an offensive. It's much more offensive in nature than defensive. What he delivers here really is a twofold answer to the Sanhedrin that is both a scathing indictment against the wickedness of unbelief that's so evident in these leaders in Israel. And simultaneously, it is Stephen's last or final effort of bringing these wicked, broken men to the glorious hope of salvation in and through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, I trust that will continue to become more and more clear to us as we work through this answer together this morning as well as in the weeks to come. So the high priest kicks it off and he says, Are these things so? What things? You remember the accusation that has been given against Stephen. They are claiming that Stephen has spoken against God. He has spoken against the law of God. He has spoken against the temple and perhaps even against the land that they were all presently in. And I would remind you that Luke has already told us these were false charges. These are not merely a misunderstanding, a misconstruing of the words of Stephen. This was much more wicked than just blatant ignorance. These men had stirred up others to bring false accusations against Stephen. And as I mentioned to you previously, we at this point in the book of Acts almost expects Stephen to follow suit with Peter and John and the other apostles and basically just say, guilty is charged. But he takes it a step further than that. He, through his giving of this brief history of Israel, turns their accusations against him upon their own heads. Look at what he does. First, he calls them fathers and brothers. I point that out to you again this morning because as this narrative unfolds, 
I want for us to see that Stephen relates himself to these men in at least one way. Though in another, I think we'll find they're quite different. And I think it'll become more and more clear here in the text that is before us this morning. And then Stephen, by pointing them to the man Abraham, points out three critical things that they had missed in Abraham's history or in Abraham's story. And I'm going to just briefly remind you what those three things were. The first thing that they had missed in Abraham's story was that God's presence was with Abraham in a pagan land surrounded by pagan people long before the land, the law, or even the promise was ever realized in any way. God's presence was with Abraham. And it's an important factor in understanding what God was doing. These men were stirred up. They were aggravated against Stephen over his speaking, specifically of the destruction of the temple. They believed that God's presence was with the temple. No temple, no presence. However, Stephen points out that God's presence is and has always been with his people. He is not now, nor has he ever been confined to a zip code in Jerusalem. It is a theme that will come up again and again in this answer to these charges that are being leveled against him. God is with his people. He was with Abraham and Ur of the Chaldeans. The second thing that they had grievously erred in that Stephen points out to them here in this very brief, condensed version of Abraham's history was that they had missed the purpose standing behind the promise that God had made to him. And in missing that, they really had missed the purpose behind Abraham's life altogether. They had erroneously believed that the pinnacle, if you will, or the identity, their identity as the people of God was that they were fortunate enough to have Abraham's literal DNA coursing through their veins. They believed that simply being physically descended from the recipient of God's great promise was all that they truly needed. They were the literal sons of Abraham. And so they took pride in being identified with the man Abraham. And in doing that, they had taken the shadow of the promise and placed it over and above its actual substance. They placed their hope in the shadow, not in the substance that it pointed towards which became for them just more and more idolatry. The shadow existed to point them to its culmination, which was realized in the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise was made to Abraham and his seed, who is Christ. And beloved, this is an area where we must beware of idolatry creeping into our own hearts. The substance of all of the shadows, is Jesus Christ. We must never follow our flesh in making Christianity about anything less than Jesus. 
Abraham was given faith by the grace of God. And through that gift of faith, Abraham took God at his word. He believed him. He trusted him. He believed that God was working to bring about a great nation, God's own people, through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. God was willing and able to make perfect what man had made imperfect through sin. And these men of the Sanhedrin had missed it. They had made the possibility of identifying with God's Messiah secondary to being identified with the things that only existed to point them towards him. And so they worshipped something much less than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The third thing we looked at was that these men had missed the faithfulness of God in all of it. God has and he always will remain faithful to bring about all that he promises in his word. If he was not willing, he would be less than God and much less than he has revealed himself to be in his word. God will keep his promise. And of course he did. Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. He condescended, that is, he came down, he put on flesh, and he walked among us. He was perfect in the eyes of the law, unblemished. He willingly went to the cross. He laid down his perfectly righteous life in our place. And he took our sin and our shame. He he paid our price with his life. And he clothed us in his perfect righteousness. Jesus truly paid it all. He rose the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He lives to make intercession for us. Beloved, all of it points to the fact that we are his. And it is our joy to worship him. It is our joy to live for him. It is our joy to exalt his most holy name. But these men had missed it. Stephen could have just made his point here. However, he's not quite finished yet. Because he moves from Abraham to the patriarchs and Joseph. And that is who is before us in this answer of Stephen to the Sanhedrin before us this morning. So let's look to the Word of God together. I'd like you to follow along as I read from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. Hear now the Word of our Lord. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. 
The second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us in this life. That we would give our undivided attention to your word and that through the power of the Spirit, hearing your word, we would be transformed more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my absolute favorite things about the Heidelberg Catechism over and above many of the other confessions, is that it contains such a clear, precise explanation of the wonderful providence of Almighty God. The doctrine of providence is a tremendous comfort to me. Knowing Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word, I know that I can trust Him with all of the moments of my tiny life. I can trust that he truly is working all things together for my ultimate good and my salvation. I can trust that I am in his all-powerful, merciful, loving hands. God's providence. Not simply his sovereignty. All of the confessions, or at least most of the confessions, are pretty clear about his sovereignty. But it's providence. It's defined for us in questions 27 and 28. 27 asks, what do you understand by the providence of God? I want you to listen to the answer. The almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, he upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28 then gets to the application of this precious truth. It asks the question just like we would expect to hear it. What does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? Listen to the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creatures shall separate us from his love since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. Is your God this big this morning? Well, the point of it is clear, right? This is my Father's world. He's doing what he wills. He wills that all of those who are His will come to redemption through the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wills it. We have the witness of Scripture 
that he will move heaven and earth to that very end. Do you believe that this morning? The story of Joseph certainly points us towards that providence. Joseph says as much in Genesis chapter 50, verse 22. We just read it this morning. When Jacob died, what did his scandalous brothers do? Joseph's brothers became very afraid that without Jacob around, that Joseph was going to take his just revenge upon them for selling him into slavery and then lying about it to their father Jacob, telling him that his beloved son was dead. And Joseph reminds them that this life is not just about them but that God was doing something to protect his promise, the promise he made to Abraham, his covenant. He says to them, beginning in verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And it says Joseph comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. As we move now from Abraham to Joseph and to the patriarchs, there is certainly a sense where we must consider the wonderful providence of God. It is a comfort, is it not? To know that your life, that the circumstances that make up your life are not simply the result of chance and your response to chance encounters, but that God loves you like this? That he moves heaven and earth to get you before Jesus? And certainly... That providence is all over this passage. And we praise God for it. However, I want to tell you this morning that there is more here than just that. I'm telling you this morning that this whole answer of Stephen really is so deep and so complex and so beautiful that we could spend a year of Sundays and just barely scratch the surface of it. And as always, I hope you'll spend some time on your own, meditating upon what God has placed before us in his word. I want to remind you that Stephen is doing something here. Critical scholars have said that what we have here is really just a sort of bland retelling of what everyone in the room, everyone in Israel already knows. That Stephen really is just boring these men to death before they finally will have enough and eventually stone him. I say it's nonsense, right? Stephen is doing two things here. Two things. First and foremost, this is an indictment against unbelief, without a doubt. These men have missed the forest for the trees and what it means to be the people of God. Secondly, It is an invitation to repentance and life in Jesus Christ by faith. 
Stephen is most certainly proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ here. We have to see it. Stephen is saying, look, you men have missed the point of everything. Let's look at it again. He wants them to see who it is that they truly are in God's grand story of redemption. Himself included. You and I included. We must step back and we must see ourselves as Scripture truly paints us if we are ever to glean the meaning of any of it. He is saying to them, do you want to be like righteous Abraham? Trust Christ by faith or you will never be like righteous Abraham. He was righteous only by faith. Faith that God gave him. And if you simply seek to be like him, like the man Abraham, you will remain a sinner like he was without faith. He was a pagan living in a pagan land. Abraham, I don't want to get too graphic, but the man sold out his wife's embrace to rulers of nations to save his own sorry hide. Abraham. But God saved him in spite of what he was. God came and he made this man a promise. And that theme continues on here with the story of Joseph and the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes. And beloved, we must see the glory of the gospel here in God's story. And it's my hope to point it out to you this morning. First, we must see that the patriarchs did not exist to give us or anyone else a perfect moral standard to emulate and follow. I cringe every time I hear that kind of teaching in the Old Testament. I picture flannel graph boards and, you know, people moving around and, you know, be like David, be like Samson, be like... Have you read about these men? These men left us a high moral standard to follow. We need to just be like them. Be like Abraham. Be like Jacob and his sons. Be like Moses. There is a sense here where that has gone on, even with the Sanhedrin and with many in Israel. They had exalted the patriarchs themselves, and in doing it, they had missed the very point of their lives altogether. So Stephen wastes no time here getting to the roots of things with these men. And look, if you just read this as a bland retelling of history, as many of us probably have, I am sure it's easy to miss. But look at verse 9, and I want you to consider the weight of these words in this thrown-together kangaroo court in Jerusalem. He says, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Stephen makes it clear that there was something amiss with the patriarchs in Canaan. They were envious of Joseph. 
You understand what that means. They were jealous of Joseph. His father dearly loved him and they hated him for it. They hated him for his dreams of superiority to them. Well, how jealous were they? Were they just a little bit jealous? Well, as they saw this young man, their brother, approaching them in his ridiculous colorful coat, they were at that very moment deciding ten to one to murder him in cold blood. That jealous. They made up their minds, their hearts, to kill him. Reuben alone stood up and said, Brothers, we can't kill him. We can't shed his blood. These men then sold Joseph to Ishmaelite traders, who then, of course, sold him into Egypt. I want to be clear. I don't want to skate around this. These men were revilers. You understand? They were haters. They were those who were prone by their very natures to envy, malice, violence, and murder. That's who they were. They were sinners from a long line of sinners. Without the grace of God breaking in upon their lives, they were completely without hope. Condemned in their hearts, condemned in their actions. They were destined for the fires of hell. Can you imagine this crowd at this trial for Stephen's life as he drops this on them? You can hear it, right? The gasping. Some of you might be doing it now because I'm talking about Abraham and the patriarchs this way. Frantically whispering to one another, did you hear what this man just said? about our fathers. But this is what the truth of the gospel does, right? It divides. Sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing bone and marrow. Some will be convicted of sin and they will run to Jesus and find sweet relief. And others will just dive deeper and deeper into their own condemnation. That's what the gospel does. I would point out to you that this is not just Stephen saying, this is what your fathers were like. He's saying, this is what our fathers were like. He's included in the indictment. This is what we are like without the culmination, the full realization of the promise. Beloved, this is what we are like. Maybe you've heard me say it a thousand times or more from this, probably more. It's been a long time from this pulpit. But I'm not asking you if you've heard me say it. I'm asking you, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or does it aggravate you? You know, there were undoubtedly two kinds of people gathered in this kangaroo court in Jerusalem. Those who believed that they were this, sinners, And those who were sick and tired of these Christians like Stephen trying to make them out to be much worse than they actually were. Beloved, listen to me this morning. The point is that we are not just this bad apart from our union with Jesus Christ. We are worse. Do you understand? 
we see more clearly. We must see ourselves correctly in God's story of redemption if we're ever even to begin it. We are not Joseph. We are not Joseph in this story. We are not somebody who just sort of rises above his terrible situation and somehow manages to save Israel with a mighty hand against all the odds. That's not who we are. We are his brothers. So wicked that we seek to kill anyone that we see as a threat to our own sovereign little kingdoms of dirt. Too carried away in our own sin and rebellion against the most high majesty of almighty God to even see our need for a savior. In fact, when he arrived, they sought immediately to kill Joseph. Immediately. They mistreated him. They hated him. And he ultimately saves them anyway, or at least God saves them anyway through Joseph. Sound familiar to you? It should, beloved. It should. Do you see yourself as standing in desperate need of God's grace? Not just to get better in Adam, but to be alive in Jesus Christ. Not just to put some lipstick on an ugly, sinful nature so that it's not quite so offensive to those who are looking at it. This is what men like these members of the Sanhedrin had been doing, and it was an utter waste of time, an utter waste of life. Too much of evangelical Christianity is like this. Are you? Beloved, we need saving, we need life because we're not sick, we're dead dead in trespasses and sins. This whole sermon could easily be preached just from verses 9 and 10. Because look at what Stephen does. First and foremost, he points them to the heinousness of sin, even in their beloved patriarchs. But he doesn't live there. He doesn't stay there. He doesn't put roots there. The conviction of sin is not the end, but the beginning Because those next words ought to be precious to the children of God. Look at them. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. Gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Again, Stephen reminds them God does not have his P.O. box in Jerusalem. God was in Egypt with Joseph, his chosen vessel in this case for the deliverance of his people. What people? The envious, murderous, sinful people. The broken people. The people lost in the darkness of their sin. Beloved, do you see it? People like us, right? A long line of sinners going all the way back to our father Adam. And beloved, it truly ought to stir something in us this morning to see so clearly that almighty God will indeed move heaven and earth to get people like this, people 
like us to the Savior. How does he do it? There's a famine in the land. You understand a famine. <laughs> there, is, there, are, there, there is no food for anybody. Not for livestock or the people. People are starving. God's people in Canaan are in desperate need of sustenance. If they cannot get food, they will perish in the land, the, the land of promise. You undoubtedly know the story. I'm not going to rehash it all this morning. They eventually all get to Egypt, and they are saved from starvation by the hand of Almighty God through Joseph. And I want us to follow the line of Stephen's argument here. This whole story unfolds in the life of Jacob and his 12 sons in Canaan and in Egypt, and it's more than just history. It's the unfolding of prophecy. Prophecy that Stephen has already himself brought up in the story of Abraham and the promise in verse 6. You remember it? But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come serve me in this place. We're going to look at that one next week. But this is how they ended up there. By the grace of God, by the hand of God in Egypt, God willed it. You understand, God who controls the rain and the drought brought famine to his people. Why? Why would God do that? Was it so that they would see themselves as just worms being crushed by the hand of an angry God who just could not stand to be in their presence? You know, I worry sometimes that we see things this way. I confess that all too often I see this attitude creep into my own heart. I feel the hand of God moving me contrary to what I want, moving me contrary to my own will. I feel the pressure of being molded and poked and prodded and twisted and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, and I just want to resist it. Can you relate to that? I just want to fight with God. And so I put up my fists. And always, by the grace of God, it doesn't take very long before I see what I look like. And it's ridiculous. I'm always brought to the place where I remember the psalmist saying, Why do the heathen nations rage? Why? What a waste of time. What a portrait of foolishness. And we do it again and again, don't we? I, I want you to see, this is what Stephen is doing here. He wants these men to find themselves not as they desire to be, but as they are in God's story. Why would they fight against this God? What are you trying to protect? Anthills that are pretending to be empires and kingdoms? Babies dressing up like kings? It's ridiculous. What a waste of time. What a waste of life under the sun. Beloved, ask yourself this morning, is King Jesus a threat to you? 
do your circumstances lead you to curse the God who is? How easily we grumble about the things setting us up to be blown away by the grace of God. That's what's going on here. Why was there a famine? The grace of God. Why were they driven to Egypt? The grace of God. They were being brought to the feet of Jesus. Do you think about things this way? Do we grumble against the providence of God this way? I'll tell you what it sounds like. You deserve better than a lying, cheating spouse. You deserve better than a horrible boss or horrible children or horrible family members or horrible circumstances. You deserve better than loneliness. You deserve better than disease and poor health and the painful reality of living in a world broken by sin. Why does God hate me so much? Why do we rage against this God? I say it to myself. Why do I rage against this God? This God who moves heaven and earth to get me to Jesus. This God who is faithful to his promise. His people did not die of starvation in Canaan because he drove them to food in Egypt. He drove them to salvation in Egypt. And as the promise moves from Abraham to Joseph, it becomes a little less hazy, doesn't it? A little bit more clear. Do you see it? Beloved, God is not driving you into the ground in your life to show you who is boss. There's no question who the boss is. He's driving you to the end of yourself so that you can appreciate life in union with King Jesus by faith. Life clothed in his righteousness. Life indwelt with his spirit. Life as a joyful servant of the king. And we need to be reminded of it constantly because just like God's people here, we are what Paul Tripp often rightly calls identity amnesiacs. We forget who we are in Christ by faith, by grace. And so we run after everything else. We desperately seek identity in anything. Career, family, legacy, tradition, simplicity. We can take any good thing and make it bad. We can turn it into our latest and greatest idol. And yet, God brings us back. He loves us. Surely you see that here, right? What love is this? I mean, this is one of those places where you say, wow, God's ways are not our ways. I would never be this patient, this loving, this sacrificing. Jesus came and lived perfectly and died so that we might have life in him and be reconciled to God. 
though we forget it, though we fail to ever fully understand it, though we certainly do not deserve it, he gathers us up again. Beloved, do you praise God for that fact this morning? Because this is the gospel. And it should not just fuel our worship this morning, but really it should fuel every moment of our lives on this side of glory and the perfection of heaven where we get to be with King Jesus. Where sin is no longer a deterrent to our peace and our joy and our rest. Beloved, oh, that we would worship him like we remember this glorious truth. Amen.